Welcome to this week's episode of Spilling the Scoop with Papa Zoop. We are coming to you live from Zoom once again. We got Alex Yoga Mutz, Guidi Zupancic here in Nashville, Tennessee. We got Papa Zoop coming to you up in Indianapolis, Indiana. And we have the man that Burt Reynolds and Tom Selleck have been told they look exactly <laughs> like in Barry Krause. We're excited <laughs> to have you guys here today. It's going to be a blast. Uh, let's get after it. Uh, great, man. How are you? I couldn't be better. And Alex is uh, there. Alex is also from Chattanooga. So you guys have uh, Chattanooga stories later on that you could tell each other. You'll be the only ones that can understand them. And uh, But it's it's been a long time since I've seen you. You haven't changed hardly at all. You look great. Uh, how the heck did we get older? I don't know, but you look great too, Zoop. You've been a big part of my life, and I'm honored to be on this show, Alex. And and uh, John and Zoop, it's great to see you guys. Yeah, we're uh, really glad to have you. Thanks for joining us. And Barry, let's talk about uh, let's talk about how we met because I bet that we were talking a little bit before uh, before we came on here on on some of the fun times. But when we met, it was right when the the team first moved to town. We were in a little grade school over off of Fifty Sixth Street, and the weight program was. Uh, let's just say it had left something to be desired. Uh, the only reason there were weights in there is because Jim Ursay liked the lip weights. Yeah, no question about that. I got drafted by the Baltimore Colts in 1979, played five years there, and we had no weights. You couldn't even see a weight room because nobody really even cared about lifting weights. So it came over on the Mayflower in 1984, in fact, March of that time, and we commandeered Fall Creek Elementary School over there. Yeah. And um, I just remember, I don't know if it was the first year that you came in or the second year, but uh, you kind of rolled up in this uh, little Ford Fiesta. And uh, for fans out there or people out there that don't really understand how big Zoop is, I got to give you an idea. It, w when he came and saw me, it was like this Hulkamania. I mean, the guy had a, think about this. He had like a 62-inch chest and a 26-inch neck, and a head. I mean, this like a commercial toaster. I mean, look head. at it. Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> so he shows up, and I'm like, who is this guy in this little rinky-dink car? And the next thing you know, he becomes the weightlifting coach for the Indianapolis Colts. And I'm like, weightlifting? We have now a weight program or whatever. And so I just remember when he came in, I mean, we had no weights. We uh, you know, this off-season programs in the NFL at the time were on your own. They really we, – we didn't have a lot of things at that time. We didn't have free agency. Um, you know, it was just interesting time. It was like kind of a wild, wild west. And Zoop was able to, as you can, you can attest to, uh, you got hired by Frank Cush. You came in and started a program, started buying weights and stuff, and Really, nobody even participated. I remember you asking me, Barry, can you come in and start lifting with me? I'm like, okay, I don't, I'm not a big lifter, but I'll lift with you. And so we started lifting, and you became the official Colts uh, weightlifting coach and uh, did a phenomenal job starting it up. Well, and then Frank Cush flipped the switch on it real quick and made it uh, mandatory. All of a sudden, I had a bunch of, uh, a bunch of participants because nobody wanted to pay those fines. No, none of them. And, and, and a lot of them, you know, like I remember uh, just trying to drag them in like Chris Hinton. You got I know you got to remember this story. Chris Hinton, who had been we had traded for him in, in 83 for John Elway. He walked on by the weight room and you yelled at him and say, hey, hey, Hint, come on in here and lift. And he goes, no, I don't lift. 
He goes, no, no, come on in here and lift. So he laid down without warming up, and he benches 500. Zook goes, that's good. You're good. You don't have to do anything more. But there's some naturally strong guys in there. But, um, you know, you were a big part of my career. Uh, you know, when you want to talk about it, how it was a huge breakthrough with my career. And that's how you and I became close. And we did so many good things together. But you helped me at a really critical time of my career. Well, let's go backwards first a little bit. Alex, this guy, he's played for uh, some legendary coaches. He mentioned Frank Cush. Uh, Frank Cush was a, a famous coach out of uh, Arizona in college. And then you, you played for Bear Bryant. So it doesn't get any more legendary than that. Uh, talk a little bit about those times, how uh, how – I've, I've watched your YouTube video where you had the in the Sugar Bowl where you had the goal line stance, and that's part of why your face is flat in the front. You had to yeah. put your head in there and, yeah. and stop that score from uh, from happening. So but, talk about playing for uh, for uh, Bear Bryant. Okay. Well, I grew up in a place called Pompano Beach, and, um, you know, at one time our nickname's called the Bean Pickers. I mean, this old country, country little place just north of Fort Lauderdale, not far from the beach. And uh, – uh, a good friend of mine was a wide receiver, Eddie Blankenship. Uh, we used to throw the football down at the beach, and uh, I didn't realize he's from Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and was an Alabama fan. So uh, when I was in high school, toward junior and senior year, I started getting all this publicity and stuff. And back then, you know, it wasn't any kind of, uh, you know, internet uh, communications or anything. It's just word of mouth. And so um, uh, I remember him introducing Alabama football because Alabama ran a wishbone. We so we'd run the wishbone as a quarterback. You know, you fake in the line of scrimmage and you pitch. It's an option type of offense. Right. And and all of a sudden, I became an Alabama fan. Well, um, Florida was at my practices. Florida State, Auburn, all these schools were there watching me, offering me scholarships. And Alabama came in kind of toward the end, and it came down between Georgia Tech, the Rambling Wreck, because I liked architecture. Uh, in Alabama, and I picked Alabama. And uh, when I got up there, uh, I I really kind of was shocked because I was an out-of-state guy. Alabama really recruited heavily in the state of Alabama. There was not really too many guys that they would travel around. Florida, we only had three players from Florida come in that year and so forth. And I just remember looking over at the, uh, the Alabama Crimson Tide and looking at those linebackers because I was a linebacker. And I said, oh, my gosh, I'm never going to play here. I said, these guys are good. I mean, I don't know why I even thought that I was even capable of playing at Alabama. So I got in the first year, and it was basically I was a blocking dummy, and literally I was. I'd wear a thing called a zoot suit, and, and it was a, uh, like a catcher's vest all the way down, and, uh, and it would loop around my neck across my shoulder pads. And in Tuscaloosa, it would be almost 150 degrees out on the AstroTurf, and we did not have water breaks. Coach Bryant did not believe in water breaks. So guys would fall out, and they would almost die, heat strokes and everything else, and we just kept on going. And I remember uh, one of the tricks of playing at Alabama, if you wanted water, was to you know call the trainer over, and I'll tell you a little bit more about Jim Goosetree. He was the trainer at Alabama. And I swear he was a drinking buddy of Coach Bryant. I don't think he knew anything about medical anything. So he, you know, he, I'd go, hey, Coach, Coach, I feel like I'm going to pass out. And he goes, oh, okay, son, go on over there to the bucket. Say, we had a bucket. 
and, and, and it had a towel in it, and it had a little bit of ice in it. And that's all the water that you could see. And so you would take the towel and put it over your head, and it would revive your body. And the rule of thumb was don't look in the pot because it was nasty water because I wasn't the first one that day to put my <laughs> head in there or whatever. And as you'd look around, you'd, hopefully no coaches would look, and you'd suck, on the, suck the water out of the towel. But that was how we – Got water. So I, 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 Coach Bryant really taught us about leadership. He always talked about the big picture. He talked about winning national championships every day. Are you going to be a part of a national championship? Are you going to be the best that you can be? Not only on the field, but how many people are you going to influence off the field? Let me tell you this. From this point on, you are different than the normal students. Do you understand this? You, you walk differently. You talk differently. And you hold yourself up. And it really did a phenomenal job with us uh, to understand our roles. So I finally got a chance to play at Alabama. And it was against Notre Dame, believe it or not. A guy missed his tackle in 1976. Um, and uh, Coach Bryan threw me in there. And, and I got to say thank you to Touchdown Jesus because it, he was overseeing me at that time and got in the game intercepted a pass, and, you know, all of a sudden, next thing I know, we're playing Auburn the next week, and I start for the first time as a sophomore, and then two weeks later, we play in the Liberty Bowl, and I'm voted most valuable player of the Liberty Bowl. I was like, wow, all of a sudden, my career zoomed, got into my senior year, playing, finally got to play for a national championship against Penn State. They were number one in the country on a 19-game win streak. We are number two in the country, and Joe Paterno said, hey, we're going to play them. And it was a great game. It was, it was 14 to 7. We fumbled the ball in the fourth quarter with about four or five minutes left in the game. They drive down to the goal line and they have four shots to score. And we stop them on first down, second down, third down. And all of a sudden it came down to fourth down. And, what and that was, was Matt Suey, right? It was Matt Suey was the fullback, but yeah. Mike Gooman was the running back and he ended up playing for the Rams. And it was Chuck Fusina as the quarterback. So we get in the huddle, and, and all of a sudden, it's fourth and an inch. I mean, it's this far from winning a national championship. I mean, if they score, they're probably – and the momentum had the game had changed dramatically, that they had dominated all the way down. We're like, oh, my God, it's out of control. We have to stop them. So I just remember that they called timeout, and Chuck Fasina goes to the sideline. We're in the huddle, we, and, and I remember talking to the players. I said, you know what? This is what Coach Bryant talked about. He said, there's going to be a time and a place where your back is up against the wall. It's going to be in the fourth quarter. It's going to be fourth down. And the question is, are you going to have the guts? Are you going to dig deep inside yourself and have the guts to rise to the occasion and make it happen? And that's exactly, that was the epitome, that play on the goal line, if you've seen it, is the epitome of what Alabama football stood for. I mean, it was incredible how we stopped them on the goal line. I mean, we rose to the occasion. And won a national championship, Coach Bryant's fifth national championship. He goes on the next year and goes undefeated, wins his sixth national championship. And I get, I swear, because of that play, I was the most valuable player of the Sugar Bowl. And it propelled me into the NFL. And I got drafted by the Baltimore Colts by Ted Marchabroda. And it was just a, a big part of my life, a, a serious uh, – you know, transition uh, and something that really catapulted me into the NFL and got first to rounder, goals. first rounder in the NFL. And I mean, first it, round. and you didn't think you were going to be able to play at Alabama when you first got there. 
and yet you 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 were a first rounder in the NFL and had a marvelous and a long career there and and really because of your work ethic because of those things that you learned at a young age you were able to overcome a lot of injuries throughout throughout your career yeah you know, one of them was a pinched nerve and zoop you know a little bit about this uh, you really helped me build up my neck but i uh, it would paralyze me whenever i'd hit somebody uh, just almost like every other game I would either paralyze myself or my arm would go completely numb and I'd have excruciating pain and um, I remember when I was at Alabama that was the first hit was down in 1975 I was a freshman and this fullback ran me over pinched my nerve and that guy coach Goostry comes up to me and goes what is he? he's a bull it was bow-legged he come over and go what's wrong Krause and I said, I don't know. I can't feel my arm. And he goes, hang on a second. He goes over and gets a piece of ice. And he goes, let me rub that on your neck. And I'm like, that's it? That's all you <laughs> it's like, that's, that's all you got for me? He believed that ice was a miracle. It was a miracle. And that's what he'd do all the time. He'd, he'd put ice on it. But that's about I, as, as bad but, as rub some dirt on it. Yeah. <laughs> Pinched nerve all the way through my career into playing for the Colts and and you helped me build it up. I had a neck brace, but I'd still paralyze myself. I was doing it when I played for the Dolphins. And uh, fortunately for me, I've been blessed. Um, I don't have any issues yet uh, with my uh, with my neck. But uh, that was a tough thing to overcome is just, you know, the injuries. Um, if you want to get into uh, my my transition where you were a big part of my life, can I share with you? Share with everyone? Sure. Yeah. Okay. All right, in 1986, uh, I blow out my knee. The first time I ever had an injury, serious injury like that. So I go in, and uh, they scope my knee. It was against the Jets, and they scoped the knee, and I had torn uh, 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 cartilage. So they scoped it, really kind of an easy operation. Back then, it was all, everybody's learning how to do it. And uh, I remember Dr. Shelburne coming in. He said, well, I got good news and bad news for you. And I said, well, okay. Uh, he goes, what do you want first? And I said, well, what's the good news? He goes, the good news is we, we trimmed up your uh, cartilage, but the, the bad news is that you severed your ACL ligament. I go, ACL ligament, what's that? And he goes, well, let's just put it to you this way. If you want to play in the NFL, you need another one. I go, okay, so what's that look like? He goes, well, next week, I need you to come in and we're going to reconstruct your knee. So I remember uh, going to the San Francisco 49er game on Sunday, and on Monday I had a um, – uh, operation on my knee where they uh, basically re reconstructed my knee with an ACL, new ACL ligament. Okay, I was in the hospital for a week, uh, about three or four days with the, uh, at that time for the scope. And I was in a week uh, because of the rehab with this now reconstruction. And so I, w I remember going to a game of the Colts and uh, my knee was swollen. So I remember going, hey, I got to go see the doctor. I go to him, and he says, oh, my gosh. He goes, oh, that does not look good. So he aspirated my knee, and he pulled off like 90 cc's of fluid, and he goes, you're going back in the hospital. I go, why? He goes, you got an infected knee. I had um, staff. Worst thing that could have happened. Staff, worst thing. So I went in the hospital. They flushed my knee out, my third operation in four weeks now. And I really – there's a lot of things that I realized. I remember coming out of the hospital – and if you've ever had that experience of being in for about four or five days, um, it's really an incredible experience when you come outside uh, because all of a sudden you hear all these noises. You feel the wind. 
you feel all these things that you you weren't stimulated before and you're just like i looked around and i said you know what i could have died and you know here's life just going on by you know and i thought to myself i've got you know i've got a chance to make a difference here and uh, a lot of people wrote, wrote me off uh, saying hey barry with these three surgeries barry Krause is done his career's over and i remember zoop you came to me into my hospital room and you said barry do you want to play football again and i said yeah yeah i was kind of yeah and he goes, well, if you're interested, you come and find me when you get back and we'll, we'll get, you come and talk to me. And I said, okay, so I'll, that's what I did. I came back and then I started my rehab and Zoop and I, Zoop, ah, oh, Lee, we start, we lift. Zoop goes, I want to see you at four o'clock at my dad's gym in, in, in Beach Grove, uh, Indiana. I'm like, where's that? So we drove down there and here's this little gymnasium with all of these, um, Cat, you know, cables and wheels and stuff. And Zoop explains to me that Gus's dad had made all these things. And so we started working out together at 4 a.m. And um, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, I was working out with Ron Salt and a lot, a couple other guys. And I I went from losing 30 pounds in the hospital because I was so sick to uh, gaining weight. I, my playing weight in the NFL was used around 245. I was 268. I was bigger and stronger. Zoop had got me on a weightlifting program, a squats, a bench press. I could, you know, and, and we'd work out in the morning and in the afternoon, I always worked on my sprinting. And what about you as you're sitting here, but Zoop, you not only helped me physically come back uh, where I was, you know, I'm, I'm 6'3", about, I was about 245 and I was six, you know, 6'3", 268. But I came back, I was running a 4.5840. I was bigger, stronger, and meaner. Zoop had gotten into my head, and he said, man, you want to be a leader? You want to get back out on the football field? This is what you got to do. And when you walk out on the football field, you got to dominate. you got to control everybody. you got to make – and it was like this whole paradigm shift for me. And, 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 and Zoop, you just inspired me in, in, in a lot of different ways. And I ended up playing five more years in the NFL. One last story. When I came back to play, my knee didn't pass this test called a Cybex test. Yeah, I remember. It had a ratio between the, the hamstring and the uh, quad. And I walked out on the field, and I was discouraged because I'd had all the surgeries, all the great offseason with you, Zoop. And I was walking around, and you went, what's wrong with you? And I said, well, the doctors just flunked me. They're, they're not going to let me back out on the field. And he goes, why? And he goes, because I failed this test. And he goes, where's the test? And he goes, meet me back in there in five minutes. I said, all right. So I walked back in there. I got Dave Hammer, who's the trainer now. He strapped me into this thing and Zoop walks in. He goes, you ready? And before I could say ready, he reaches out with this big paw of his with calluses all over it and <laughs> slaps me across the face. Oh and he goes, are you ready? And before I could say anything else, he hits me again. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> And all of a sudden, I do this Cybex machine. I almost broke the machine. And I easily passed the test, got back out on the field. But again, Zoop, I don't know if you remember half these things. Oh, I remember that. the tar out of me. And I lived. I was just glad you didn't hit me back. <laughs> I couldn't catch you. Sorry, but it was phenomenal. It's been, uh, it's been a really good thing, Zoop. You've helped me a lot. But, you know, we had, we had some great times. And really, the National Football League, I mean, it was – it was it was old back then. 
but there were a lot of new things coming into play. I mean, the weight room and, and, and the lifting and the off-season training programs, they were non-existent. I mean, we were one of the first ones to have that, you know. And a lot of it was because Jim Mersey was a weightlifting enthusiast, and uh, he enjoyed, you know, doing that. Alex, there was, there was nobody doing yoga. Okay, Alley, they came around and, uh, you know, they started introducing strength and conditioning into football, uh, you know, into the arena. And obviously guys like Barry are a testament that uh, work through injuries. You can climb on top of things and you stay with it a lot longer. He doesn't have any problems today. He's walking around, you know, pretty much pain-free. So yeah. don't just become like an incredible Hulk and can't move. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, that that's – that's what you had to avoid from happening. So everything had to be well-rounded. You had to have a good running program, a good stretching program, and, and a good lifting program. And we did a lot of functional stuff like push that little orange car around. I mean, yes, we, we did, did. Didn't we? a lot of those types of th uh, things as Dude, well. Tell, tell them about uh, the competition at the end of the off-season with the trophies. Oh, we'd have uh, the Ironman competition. So – Every year, you know, it's a lot of the you do you do a lot of testing. You know, when it, you do the combine, they test you on the bench press, they test you on the vertical jump, they do all these different things, and they decide what kind of athlete you are, what kind of athletic ability you have. But we had our own little rock throw where you threw like yep. a sixty-pound boulder yes. as far as you could, and uh, there were some of the other things we had. We had a bench press. We had the bench press two and a quarter as many times as you could. And a lot of these guys would do m many more than they would do when they were in the combine because they were all in fantastic shape at this point in time. But we had these this Ironman competition, and then when that was all over with and you wouldn't do this today, we had beer and, and uh, steaks that we would cook outside and yep. uh, celebrate a good offseason. So it was, it was really the last of the old school thinking and the beginning of new school thinking. And, yeah. uh, you know, and then that was my second year in the league when, when we're talking about all these things. And, you know, I was in the league for 28 years. So for 16 more, for 16 years, I was a strength and conditioning coach. So man, things changed like crazy. Now they have five and six strength and conditioning coaches on each team. They wouldn't let me have an intern. They were afraid he would eat too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you had you changed it. I mean, you really you were one of the the first ones in the NFL to ever do what you did, and you made it so much fun too. I mean, yeah, we, a lot we of guys did have a good time. It was a seafood diet, and so that was one of the reasons why I gained all my weight. I was with Ron Solt, remember the offensive lineman? Oh yeah. And, and they, you know, I'd eat a couple dozen eggs. I, you know, I wanted to be worthy of these guys, so they'd order a dozen eggs. Like, yeah, I'll take a dozen eggs, too, and all the raisin toast and bake, a pound of bacon be fine. And we used to just eat so much, but we worked out. We had fun, and Zoo, you, you made it fun. And at the end, you know, with the trophies and all, and it came down to, remember, the decision was your weight class. Uh, they had a weight cutoff, and then it came down to uh, body fat. Remember? Yeah. 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 And so that was how you won. Uh, was the, it, it, like if you were 240 pounds or less, body fat, how'd you do? And then above that. So, uh, but it was. Yeah, a we, lot were introducing, we were introducing a lot of things at those times. You know, sure. it, it reminds me when you say you remember Don Joyce, don't you? The scout, the yes. old Baltimore Colts scout. Uh -huh. Well, he was, he was voted the meanest man in football, in pro football. Now, 
he is a lot older than you and I. I don't, I don't think uh, Mr. Joyce is still alive today. But one time, we were going to the comp. We were going down to the Senior Bowl in Mobile, Alabama, and I went out to eat with this guy. And this guy was big. I mean, he was like three forty and a big man. And he had a reputation for being able to eat, as did I. You know, I could, I could, I could put away. So that's a good reputation. And he ordered a twelve pack of beer. So he's eating 144 oysters. I'm barely able to choke down these 60s. I felt like the biggest wimp in town. I mean, oh that, uh, this guy, this guy's, you know, he's telling stories about they, they got shot and all kinds of other oh, things. No. Yeah, yeah. He had, he had a, a plethora of good stories. So, but, uh, you know, that was really back when the league had changed and there were still some guys the older guys that were in there that, uh, that kind of went through those old times and those old days. And you really were on that, you know, that cusp where players changed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, just to really kind of, um, again, it wouldn't have happened unless you had a relationship with Jimmy and you and Jimmy, you, you, you go, I, I got Jimmy's credit card or something. I don't know what you did, <laughs> but he went and bought big speakers and oh, put them yeah. in the weight room. Yeah, and uh, all of a sudden he bought brand new weights and everything else, and, and it was all these squat racks and things that you know we had never been around. But Jimmy just said, "Man, do it, make it happen." And I remember Hunter Smith; they had the training room not far from us. Zip and I, we turned that thing up. Bah, bah, bah. You know, <laughs> he had little CDs. Remember, you bought a little CD, a whole oh, yeah. system, and everything, and we would rock this uh, the uh, the facility. And I don't know, people would complain. They'd like, I remember Bob Turpin coming down and goes, y'all need to, I can hear that on the other end of the, the place. You know, I can't believe you're doing this. And, and Zupa just kind of laughed. And man, we're working out, man. This is how it is. But Jimmy was phenomenal. He really did. I remember watching you bring him in and he's doing, Jimmy Ursay, the, the owner of the coach is doing squats. And he's like, yeah. yeah. And, and, and he, he, he squatted 700 pounds. Did he really? Yes. That's more than me. Yeah. He, he was. Duke would have these shirts and these shirts that were like 10 times too small for you. And it would take almost an hour to get you in them. <laughs> and you'd be like this. And he got Jimmy Ursay in. <laughs> Jimmy's, Jimmy's doing the squat. He's got squat thing. I'm like, oh my God, he's going to. But we had this thing called Plan B. So uh, Ernie, of course, he was a good friend of mine, was a general manager of the Baltimore Colts uh, way back when. Uh, and then uh, Bud uh, Carson became head coach at Cleveland. Remember Bud was – Oh, yeah. Oh, no, he was there before you. But Bud was the defensive coordinator for the Steelers when they won all the Super Bowls. He's uh -huh. I mean, a phenomenal coach. He becomes head coach, brings me up there. I end up going through training camp and getting cut. I thought it was the worst day of my life. I really did. I said, God, what has happened? You know, I had my 11th year. I'm in great shape. I get released. I thought it was the worst day. And I remember loading up my truck in Cleveland and going down, driving five hours back to Indianapolis, emptying my truck out at about 7, 8, 7, 8 a.m. in the morning the next day. And uh, I get this phone call. And, you know, it's like, really? Who's calling me at 8 o'clock in the morning? And it's Don Shula. He says he's Don Shula. I'm like, yeah, sure. It's probably Zapanzik over there. <laughs> hey, this is Don Shula. I want you to play for the Dolphins. I'm like, no way. And I did. I went, no way. And he goes, hang on a second. 
I'll put somebody on you know, and uh, George Hill got on the phone, which you know, oh, George yeah. Hill. he was our de defensive coordinator with the Colts, and he became a coordinator with the Dolphins. And he goes, right. hey, Dolphins want you, Coach Shula, you know. And I said, great. And this was in September. I ended up starting and leading the team in tackles I, and playing for my childhood dream because I grew up in Pompano, and I loved the Dolphins, loved Don Shula. So I, what I thought was one of the worst things that could have happened, and, and I, you know, from a spiritual standpoint, a lot of times you don't understand why things end, but they have to end sometimes for you to move forward in your life. And if it wasn't for me being cut by the Cleveland Browns, I would never have been able to play for the Miami Dolphins to finish on my career. Uh, but it was, it was phenomenal to be able to, to do that. So here's my story. So I go in with the Dolphins and, and we were at a junior college. That's where we worked out. It was uh -huh. just this beat up, dilapidated facility. And I remember walking in and there's this 90 by 50, 90 by 80 place. And it had um, a fence all the way across this one side that overlooked a pool. You know, it's kind of weird. And um, the weight, uh, I mean, the, 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 uh, like the bench presses and the incline benches, everything had rust on them. I was like, what is this? Doesn't anybody lift? And I see this guy over in the corner, and he's smoking a cigarette. I mean, we're right by the trainer's training room. I walk in, this part of the facility is smoking. And he's the he's a tight end for the Dolphins, and I go, hey, um, is this the weight room? And he goes, takes his folk and he goes, and he goes, uh, I think that's what they call this. I mean, <laughs> Shula didn't believe in working out either, uh -huh. so I revamped that. I took a Zupanzik Junior attack, and I got the got the coaches to believe that we could get better weights and stuff. And I remember the reason being is I was doing an incline, and the incline bench was uh, wood. And it was rotted out, and it snapped on me. That's how bad the oh. weight room with the dolphins. You would never believe it. Now you know multi-million-dollar facilities, but oh, you're yeah. so far ahead. And I took that to the dolphins, and I got dolphin players working out. And uh, and I think you know, just it just has you know, he's influenced me and been able to finish my career on a high note. Well, and you you had the equal influence on me. Believe me, Alex. There's some things, you know, you're, you're very young and, and, and we're, you're going to learn some things here. We had a thing we called self-imposed environmental misery. Okay? <laughs> and that meant when it was 100 degrees outside and you were on your 10th to a day, yeah. okay, I would wear two pairs of sweats. Yeah. The house would come out. He would have yes. sweats on under yes. his uniform. Yes. And, and you would drive yourself and, yep. and do things. And I'd always have hurt players that I'd work with during practice where I'd be pushing with them and wrestling with them and doing all kinds of different things. Yeah. And you'd see, I mean, we would lose 10, 12, 14 pounds yeah. in practice. Yeah. Crazy. I mean, it was, uh, it was, it, and it was before anybody knew yeah. that you were supposed to drink water. It was, yeah. A, yeah. It, it was, was. A weakness. That little that was a, that makes up like 70% of us. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, you had plenty of it. You had 70%. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, why did you need more? You know, but uh, it was one of those deals where really water was a, a weakness. Oh, I mean, okay. that's the way people thought. And uh, I would be concussed because I was on all special teams. And I remember getting dinged. And I didn't know that getting dinged was the same as a concussion. Because sure. it was one of those things where you get 
you, you'll make a hit and you know something just happened and you're not totally there, but you can still function. And so I went through most of my career with like dings and, and, you know, people ask me all the time, how many concussions you have? And I, you know, it's not a joke, but I go, I don't, I don't remember how many I had, you know? Yeah. Uh, but I used to, I was telling Zoop, I used to hit with my face and you can tell that. Um, but um, I remember going into the uh, training uh, weight room or no, into the uh, uh, room where uh, Johnny Scott room. was. Yeah. And, uh, well, yeah, during, during halftime, and I said, Johnny, why is my helmet rolling across my head? That's because you flattened it out, Barry, because you flattened the face mask. Face masks are, like, rounded. I would come in, and it would be flat because I'd hit you with it. I mean, it was just all about head button and everything, and that's what it was back then. And, um, you know, it was just – that's what made it happen. But um, one of the stories about Zoop, Zoop is always a trendsetter, and – always trying to motivate us on the sideline. He'd walk around with uh, ammonia inhalants and make us snort it. And he'd headbutt us with our helmets on. He'd headbutt us. He didn't have a helmet and he'd headbutt us. I'm like, he goes, are you guys ready? Yeah, you're ready. And so, so he comes out, we're playing the New England Patriots in New England. Oh, I'll I remember I that one. I believe it's this one. Yeah, it was that game. I mean, it was like 30 below. Zoop comes out. And he's wearing a T-shirt. I think he had shorts on or something. And you were trying to motivate us. And we we're like, look at it. Snoop, what are you doing? You don't have any clothes on. He goes, it's all right. It doesn't bother me. This, he was trying to make sure the weather didn't bother us. And so he, afterwards, he runs in. I go, Zoop, man, how did you do that? He goes, man, I told you. He goes, I couldn't have taken another minute. I was crying. I had to get inside. I was freezing. Oh. Dumbest thing I'd ever done. Oh. It was a halftime. I went in at halftime, oh. and George Hill, who was our uh, coordinator at the time, called a timeout, and I almost killed him. If I could have moved, I would have killed him. But I went in at halftime, and John Scott, the equipment guy, still the equipment guy now, yeah. He gave me so much clothes, so many outfits I put on every. I looked like the Michelin Man in the second half when I That's came back out. But it, it, uh, yeah, it, the sun in New England goes like this, like that. I mean, it, it stays up for about 15 seconds, you know. So we get a lot of warmth. But again, self-imposed environmental misery. We did things on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, we did things to make ourselves miserable just to see if we could do it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there there has to be a lesson there somewhere. I haven't figured out what it is yet. <laughs> there has to be a good reason why we did that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've got a question for you. Speaking of self-imposed misery, um, John and I went and worked out with Papa Zoop um, over a holiday one time, and he showed us this exercise that he said he would do with um, some of the players that were injured to help rehab them. And I you know that you had just said that um, he helped you come back from that knee surgery. Did yep. he ever do the thing with the, the broom handle with the towels on the end or like work you out with like just a plain towel? Just um, a manual, which, manual exercise. Yeah, 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 the me. manual exercises. Because yeah. I was about ready to take that broom and throw it out the window. Was it Jack LaLanne type of? isometrics no actually it was just where i put you know you would do sideways uh, things you do curls and yeah. i would just put resistance against you oh, you know yeah. and you did it to you know, the way i used to work your neck and you would do yeah you know multiple sets of that and uh, you know yeah. pushing on it but yeah. uh, 
Yeah, they, yeah. The, the newbies came in and they wanted to, to do I that I was workout. like, what is this like strange contraption and why does it hurt so bad? <laughs> why does it hurt it's, so bad? It, um, it's a, there was always a benefit at the end of the day. Yeah, somehow, it, somehow we got a benefit. If you looked up Zoop in the dictionary, pain would be right next to it. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was very upfront in saying that that's how it would go and she didn't believe me. Yeah. <laughs> well, John grew up kind of in that fashion, you know, our fun, you know, a lot of kids played tag and stuff like that yeah. in the neighborhood. He would, uh, him and, and Jake and even Katie, they would run up and down the big hill that we have out in front here. And they'd have to carry a chair up to the top of the hill, then some dumbbells to the bottom of the hill. Then they'd have to run back up, make three free throws. Cause I had to throw some skill set in there. So they had to make three free throws and then, and then whoever won, got like a piece of candy or something so it was uh i was playing those games i was playing screwed up version of the von trapp family (laughs) i was wondering what it would be like to to live with zoop every day as a dad (laughs) did he slap you or anything every once in a while like hey come on it's time to eat yeah just a little bit (laughs) always playful happy motivation is what it was Oh man, that's funny. Yeah, <laughs> Alex, shoot, uh, shoot, Barry, another question here. Yeah, I Barry, just saw you start to ask. Yeah, for sure. So I was doing a little research on you because you know I'm not as well versed in uh you know a lot of the football terminology and everything. But what I did find was that you're an artist, and I would love to yeah. hear more about some of the work that you do, your inspiration, um, and how you kind of started, you know, painting to begin with. Yeah, um, I started drawing when I was a kid. I mean, that's what I did in school. I drew pictures, you know, instead of learning anything else. So I've been always <laughs> an artist. Fine. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've just always done it. My my mother's an artist, and my dad was uh, my dad was an artist, uh, and we have artists in our family. And it's kind of ironic uh, that you know he's a middle linebacker in the NFL trying to t- take people's heads off that likes to work in watercolor. You know, and so I like watercolor. I like the different mediums. Um, I, I don't do so much in acrylics, but I do pastels. And I'm just learning how to do oils. I'm enjoying oils now. And so during this period of time, I've really, uh, really pushed myself to try to learn uh, the medium. And it's kind of ironic because watercolor, basically, you have to think ahead. Uh, there's no white watercolor. So you have to leave that area white on the paper. Okay. And so that's your thought as you start to plan a picture. Whereas in oils, the white's the last thing. And it's about layering, it's about patience. So I'm trying to learn patience with oils. And so, um, but I've had some great opportunities to uh, do some really cool things. And one of the, uh, ironically a story, um, a lady came up in my neighborhood uh, just about a month ago. I think it was about a month ago. And uh, do you remember Bobby Bethard that was the general manager of the San Diego Chargers? Sure. Well, there was a tragedy in Nashville, and Alex, you probably heard about it, but his grandson was murdered in Nashville at a club. He was a quarterback for a New York team, a little college team, and uh, his name was Clay. And um, he and a bunch of his buddies went into a bar in Nashville in December of 2019 and uh, some girl got accosted and they said something about it. The guy goes outside, grabs a knife and, and, and actually 
waits for them and kills him, stabs him in the chest, kills his friend, and stabs another guy. Mm -hmm. And it's Bobby Bethard, the great legendary Hall of Fame grandson. So this lady comes up to me and she goes, um, I don't know if you've heard about this, but she's, I'm very close with the family. And I'd like to commission you uh, because I heard you're an artist. Would you do me a favor and paint a picture of this young man? And I'm like, what, what do you want? What, what do you, and she said, I don't know. Just would you do this and I'll pay you for it. I went, really? So I had not been painting for a while and really, I didn't really know how to take it on. I was afraid to take it on because I hadn't been, and, and, and that, was, that was a huge burden upon me because it, she was going to give it to the family, you know, after they just buried their son. And it just was like heavy on my heart. So I probably went through 10, 15, 10, 10 plus different renditions of him playing football, this position, this color, never, it would never come out, never come out, never come out. And it wasn't working. It was like, I can't do this. I'm a, I was so close to calling this young lady, this lady up and saying, I can't do this. This is just too much on my heart. I, I just, I'm not good enough. And all of a sudden I got up there and I had been asking the Lord to help me. And all of a sudden I made this, great picture of him and it was a watercolor and I went wow I did it you know I was able to get him in he's a quarterback and, and it just made me so happy that I finally got a finished product my wife said my god this is fantastic so I remember showing it to her and she said oh my gosh it's better than I ever thought thank you so much gave it to the mother uh, of the son that passed away she calls me up and she says I just want to let you know how uh, wonderful that is, you know, what you were able to do. It really, I know he's happy and he's thankful for what you've done. And uh, for you to do that for our family at this time of tragedy, I really appreciate it. And thank you. And I was like, oh my gosh, I need to be doing more art. You know, if I can have an influence, I can help whatever little way it inspired me. So I've been really through this whole virus thing, really painting trying to paint every day and learning how to paint with oil colors. So I was inspired. So I love art. I really am really into it. I that's love that. That's great. Let, let me ask you something. You say oils, because I dabble some with acrylics. No, those uh, are because, finger, finger paints. Yeah, they're like finger paints. <laughs> they dry so much faster. The oil, the oil I go yes. back to do something else, and it's not dry for no. days, it might no. be, you know, before it's dry. <laughs> So yeah. I don't have the patience to stick with that. So I have to do something that I could put multiple layers on in one night. So have you found that oils are a lot more? And I've, I never thought we'd be discussing this. Yeah. Have you ever thought that, or do you, do you like painting with the oils? Do you, do you enjoy the, the, the patience that it requires to be successful with it? Zoop, I don't have very much patience like you, like you're talking about. And this is really forcing me to do that. I, I, I've, I've really gotten into art where I'm understanding that it's all about layers, layers and layers and layers. And when, when I did watercolors, once I laid the stain down, it's there. I mean, I can't change it. I really can't blend it much. unless And once it dries, it's, it, I can't do anything. So um, acrylics, you can, you can do a little bit more. But like you said, they dry really fast. And all of a sudden, before you know it, it's there it is. Yeah. Oils have been, I mean, you got Picasso, Rembrandt, and all these uh, Renaissance guys that, that learned how to uh, work with a pigment 
in a medium. And the pigment is the color and the medium might be linseed oils. And, and, and you mix these oils with, and, and these guys were doing this way back in the 15, 14, 1500s of these awesome, I mean, Leo de, Leonardo da Vinci, you know, all the things that he was doing. Uh, but what I've realized is that you really do have to have patience. The great thing about oils is that you can come back and you can wipe it out. Um, I did a portrait, which is one of the harder things to do. Um, I did this portrait of this woman and I didn't like the eyes and I could take my brush and paint over the eyes and start all over again. I was like, really, I can do that. So you can fix things, you can adjust things, you can go away from your picture and come back to it and go, you know what? It's, it's about tones, it's about shades. And so I'm learning all of that, where the darkness. And so here's an interesting thing about oils. I know we're getting into this, but you lay a background first. And that background might be a red and an orange background. And you're going, wait a minute, I'm doing uh, uh, you know, a bunch of trees in the woods. Why would I have that? But you realize those, those colors, you cover them up, but you leave a little bit. Um, and it gives you that, a lot of times, the, the depth that you're looking for. Because effect, yeah. you're, taking a, you're looking at something, and it's 3D, and you, you're working on a one-dimensional plane. You're trying to reproduce that three dimensions. Three, so you're trying to create that depth. And so you lay those colors down, the dark colors, and they become the shade. And then you lighten it as you come closer and closer. It's really cool. And the spectrum of colors and understanding those things. So uh, that's what I'm into. I'm learning all that. Well, I've got your phone number. I want you to take a picture of several okay. of your pictures. I'll take a picture of several of mine, and we'll shoot them back and forth. These Good. I'm glad that you're an artist. Maybe that's what brought us together. <laughs> so here's what's really interesting is, so Barry, uh, two weeks ago, we interviewed Tony Mandrich, who is a photographer. So now I've met probably three of the biggest guys I've ever met in my whole life, and you're all artists of some sort you know papa zoop he paints with acrylics and um uh and he plays piano and does other music and then you're this um, photographer yeah and and you're an artist you know what is it about that somebody that plays such a violent game all of a sudden you're yeah. turning to art at, at the you know in, later in life is well, that really it alex well, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just think it's really interesting because I was reading a, um, a article that, that you were interviewed in Barry and it talked about how, you know, you play this violent game and you want to rip someone's arm off and then throw it back at them, but you love it. watercolor because it's soft, you know, and then you've got Papa Zoop who again is like one of the biggest guys I've ever met and he's sending us photos and we've got two beautiful, um, pieces of art in our house now that are so like well thought out and like wow. very intentional um and beautiful and it's just really interesting to see you know these two amazing sides like here's papa zoop who slapped you in the face and made you do uh this <laughs> interesting <laughs> test yeah. and now he's over here painting really bright beautiful stuff so we're I, renaissance men yeah I that's right like, you know it warms my heart it, it's it is funny that that we can laugh and joke. I mean, to say, yeah, remember when you slapped me in the face as hard as you could? Yeah. <laughs> like, and I, oh, yeah, I remember that. That was great. <laughs> yes. And I liked it. I would, <laughs> you know, 
He's like, yeah. Before I could, I'm surprised. And that's one of the things is, uh, you know, I was wondering why I've lost all my molars. You know, it's because of people slapping me and me grinding them up. But I think I took a lost a couple of teeth when you hit me that one time. But yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you know, what's cool is that uh, photography is a big part of what uh, that we do as artists. We will look at pictures and stuff. And now I'm into a thing called plain art. Are you familiar with plain art? No. It's P-L-E-I-N, plain art. And plain art is where you go outside, set your easel up, and you paint landscape. You paint something, a building outside. You look at all the different variations of depth and colors and darkness and what brings certain things out and stuff. And it's really incredible um, how the more I know, the more I know I don't know about art. And there's so much that we can continue to learn and transition, but a big part of art is balance. So when you look at a picture, like looking at it, they always tell you to squint and you're looking for four to five different variations of a color, like dark here. You got this dark color, this dark color, this color, and, the, and, the, and where is the light coming from? And so not only from an artist standpoint that we, uh, find ourselves, you know, as far as what we do, but photographers, same thing of trying to find balance in the photograph. What are you trying to capture? What do you want the viewer to see, you know, to experience? And that's what I guess Zoop and I are doing. We, we do it in a different capacity, but we're, we're seeing it. And what's really cool is that it's our interpretation of what's there. It's not, it doesn't, there's some people that do almost like life-like things. Well, I'm not a life-like person, but I can get close and do some things. But it's how we look at things. And um, I remember uh, Barry White was interviewed one time, and they said, hey, man, there's, there's some critics out there that don't like your music. And he goes, you know what? I don't play my music for anybody else. It's all for me. It comes from my heart. And I'm not looking for approval from anybody else. And that's the same thing as artists. You know, when you paint something, you really put yourself out there, Zoop, for criticisms or critiques, however they come. And, and it could shatter your ego. I'm telling you, it's tough after the NFL. I mean, somebody looks at my thing and goes, oh. And my wife will go, oh, my God, what, what is that? I'm like, oh, I, I don't want you to even see it yet. So, you know, you put yourself out there as, as an artist. But you know what? That's that's okay. It's good. I mean, it, I think it's one of the things that I take, you know, from the last couple of interviews that we've done, uh, one with Tony Mandrich, who had a strange, very strange career. You know, he hit the highest highs and yep. the lowest lows. And uh, I know your career was uh, was like Rocky. I mean, you came from not thinking you could play at Alabama to being a national champion in college to being a first round draft choice and playing for a dozen years in, uh, in the NFL, you know, what did you take away from that mentally that, that you've transferred to your kids and transferred to other jobs that you've had? I know I hired you when I was at the Colts, uh, to do our post game radio show. What did you take from those experiences into life? I, I, I take a lot of things away from it, um, you know, really to become a self-starter and to really um, be a leader. Uh, so I did a lot of stuff in the communities, 
uh, I contributed myself, you know, to, to doing a lot of things. Um, but it, it's really helped me with my kids, you know, really just helping them. You know, a lot of times uh, uh, my wife would say, you know, Barry, you know, uh, the headbutting is not working with your daughter. Can you try something else? I'm like, well, Zoop said it, it worked at one time. So, you know, I, I've always been a motiv you know, motivational speaker. I love to get up. And, and that was one thing that I got kind of thrown into uh, is, is getting up in front of people. And uh, I do a John Maxwell leadership program. And, and uh, let me tell you this, uh, if you want to lead a company, you want to be a leader, you got to be able to step up in front of people and talk to them. You got to feel sure. good and comfortable because whether you are a leader or not, you portray yourself as a leader as you stand before somebody. So I love to uh, go and do corporate speaking engagements and, uh, uh, go out there and, and re relate what happened to me on the football field about, you know, taking control. Um, at first and foremost, uh, you've got to understand that you got to get up with a, you know, with a purpose and the purpose being whatever that is. And uh, each day plan yourself out that, you know, you can be successful. And I look at all failures as successes because the more same thing with the painting every time I, I ruin something like I, I've ruined a lot of pictures it's it's really emotional and I like get upset and I throw the you know the thing away and like gosh I'm terrible and I'm like no I got to get back and do it again and football taught me that it's about getting back up there putting yourself out there for failure putting yourself out there uh, but I I truly have taken so much away from it, and, and, but I miss, I really miss being out on the football field. When I think about, when I share with people, I said, you know, the Indianapolis Colts is a billion-dollar organization, and I was in charge of the defense, and I had to make sure all the defensive players were doing the right thing. I had to make the right calls, and I remember the responsibility of that and understanding that the night before the game, I would sit in a shower in the hotel room because we would check into a hotel before a game, NFL game, man. And I'd spend like almost two to three hours in the shower. And it was, it was like kind of weird, but I'd sit there and I'd, I'd do every formation that the New England Patriots could come out. The personnel, uh, what defenses I would call, how to check in and out of this or whatever. And so, and then the next morning I would redo it again. I played the game over. By the time I got to the game, I, w I knew what was about to happen. I could predict what happened. And that's what made Peyton, Peyton Manning, one of the many things that I admired about him, but his work ethic was phenomenal, which I learned a lot. But I thought I had a pretty good one But until I met him. But Peyton Manning would want you to blitz him. He wants you. Come on and blitz. You know, he'd go, go bring it on because I'm going to burn your ass because I know exactly what you're going to do. And it was preparation uh, meeting that opportunity. And so, you know, I love being out there in command of the defense. I love the responsibility. And there were times where I blew coverages. You know, I'd come to the sideline, George Hill, the defense coordinator, goes, why, why didn't you check out of that? It just cost us a test. And I said, I'm sorry, coach. I blew it. But I won't let it happen again. And so making adjustments on the field, it was just a really cool thing to be able to experience in front of 60,000 people, millions of people across the country. I miss the excitement of that, the thrill of that. And it's been hard after playing in the NFL to kind of even get close to that experience. And so, uh, you know, I've gone through a lot of ups and downs. And, and because of what I learned 
about uh, staying strong, getting back up, and believing in myself. And, and, and really, a lot of the stuff is, you know, the mentally, I can do it, not, you know, can, I can't do it. I can do it. I will do it. I'll get it done. And so all the different things and projects that I've gotten into, I've done a lot of different business opportunities, uh, projects, and uh, been able to, been very successful at them. And it was because of that work ethic that I learned on the football field and in that weight room with you, Zoo. Well, and I, I you know, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't be prouder to be a part of, uh, of your life and saw you grow from, uh, you know, a football player to a, a, a you really, you, be, you became a man when you were in the, uh, in the NFL. And then you, uh, you know, afterwards you dealt with the, the, the change that uh, took you out of the limelight. You came back, you did sideline work. You, you kept in touch with the game, like the yep. game that you loved all your life and you still are in touch with it. So I think that's a fantastic uh, storyline to, to keep going. Now you throw the art thing in there. You really got some interesting concepts. And I got to thank Jimmy Ursay and, and uh, Pete Ward. I mean, uh, and you, I mean, you got me, gave me the opportunity and Pete Ward has just been kind, Jimmy Ursay. And I'm one of those old guys. I mean, it's so funny because I'll go around these young players. I'm just looking at them and I go, God, they're just babies. They're, they're little babies, you know? And um, they really, a lot of them don't know history in the NFL. You know, you could ask them who Johnny Unitas was, and they're like, I don't know who Johnny Unitas How about you? <laughs> name it. Uh, who, who's that? Yeah. They, they really yeah. don't know the history. And so um, it has been so uh, incredible, like you said, to still be in touch with the game, to be close to it. And uh, I just remember doing the sideline reporting for the nothing last year, okay? And I remember watching these 300-pound linemen come over the sideline and right in front of me hit the running back. Boom! Just smack them. And I was like, whoa! I mean, that had to hurt. And both, and both of them would bounce back up and run back to the huddle. Yeah. And I'm like – I used to do that. But nowadays <laughs> when I go down on the ground, it takes me a while to get back out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I crack up and some yeah. people go, Barry, man, you look like you can still play. I'm like, let me tell you this. True story. I'd be good for one kickoff and it would, I would be a lot of nuts and bolts and a, an oil slick right behind me, but I'd give it all kinds of hell. Uh, but, you know, the game is so incredible, Zoop. You have this short window and before I know it, what's it, 30 years ago, I played in the NFL. It's like, what? Yeah. And um, you have that opportunity, whatever that is, to experience in that. And before you know it, it it's over. And you reflect on it. And, uh, you know, I don't, you know, uh, when you look back, you just don't want to have any regrets. And I, I just, I, I kind of look at life that way, too. You're talking about what did you take away? Um, I remember there was a wrestler in the Olympics. And Zoop, you probably know him and what he did, but um, he was the heavyweight champion of the world uh, for the U.S. United States of America. Rulon Gardner. Yeah. Yes. And do you remember what he did in the final? Let the, let the, the shoes. Yeah. So let me play that up. He wins a, a gold medal, and then uh, then four years later, he he goes through all these injuries. I guess it was just brutal on him, and. It just took a toll on him. And so afterwards, I think he ended up getting a bronze medal. And afterwards, he just sits down after his last match, unla unlaces his shoes, 
and everybody's watching him and they were like, what's he doing? And he goes and he leaves his shoes out in the middle of the mat. And they were, the reporters are going, what, what, what was that all about? He said, that represents the fact that I gave it everything that I had and I left it out there. I yeah, thought yeah. that was just an awesome. And that's how I feel. I wanted to really kind of leave it out on the field and uh, just give it everything. And I, and like I said, I don't have any regrets. I did the best I could. I tried the best. And with your help, Zoop, I got back in there and played another five years. And, you know, I went and fulfilled a childhood dream playing for, you know, Don Shula. So I've just had a wonderful life. And I just thank all the wonderful people in my life. And you're, you're a big part of it. Hey, hey, you look great. You know, you, you say these guys don't know the history of the, the history of everything. I don't think anybody truly appreciates the history until they become part of it. Yeah. And, you know, you become part of it when you look back on all these friendships, you look back on all these relationships and things that you developed over the years and you touch base with those people and see how they're doing today. And some of them are doing well, some of them aren't doing well, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's great to see you and hear you on the radio, see you on television and, you know, Alex think you, thinks you look like uh, – who did you think oh, you look like? Oh, my gosh. You are the spitting uh, image of Tom Selleck and Burt Reynolds. Oh, uh, you're so Tom sweet. Selleck, <laughs> oh, yeah. Tom yeah. Selleck and Burt Reynolds. Oh, Get out of here. photos, and I was like, that's not yeah. That's not his, She's not his, it, If his head gets any bigger, he's going to weeble over on us and fall down. I can't yeah. know. Literally, as soon as I saw that photo, I was like, I know that face. I know it. I've seen it. And I was like – On a dartboard. Yeah. <laughs> well barry we want to thank you for uh coming on and uh, we got a couple more uh questions oh, oh you do okay yeah. all right go ahead questions from the audience but i also have one more question for both of you um so obviously both of you are very motivational barry you're a motivational speaker papa zoop you are too um and you're also both artists like we talked about earlier but i know that like right now while we're all still in self-isolation and in quarantine you've got a lot of people with a little bit more time on their hands um really trying to figure out how to be productive in the world, like how to make something that, I don't know, might make an impact, might not, might just pass the time, who knows, but kind of just like get by. And so I'd love to hear from both of you what what advice you have for people trying to um, create in this space of unknowing and just weirdness that we're all going through right now. Go ahead, Barrett. What do you got? I just think that uh, with all this going on, I just think that uh, from a spiritual standpoint that, you know, I trust, trust in the Lord. And I trust that uh, we're going to come out of this uh, stronger as a country. Uh, I think we have great leadership right now with uh, President Trump. I think he's done a phenomenal job. I mean, uh, it, it's been very difficult for everyone. Uh, it's a once in a lifetime experience. I've never experienced anything like that. Um, but um, it's really bringing communities and families together. There's always something good when something happens. I think people say sometimes you have to have the dark to see the light. And I think that's what we're going through. So I'm always motivational and positive where I'm thinking, okay, there's, there's a lot of good things that we can take away from this experience. First off, you're seeing a lot of families come together and doing things a lot more with each other. The moms and dads are doing things. I see kids out on the on the streets riding bicycles again. Oh my gosh, I haven't seen kids riding bicycles. I got people, um, husband and wife, my wife and I, we take walks and we see other people taking walks throughout the neighborhood. 
I mean, when's the last time you saw really couples walking together? And so there's so many incredibly wonderful things that are happening. Our world will never be the same. And it'll be, I think, better for it. I think that we're learning more about where we are uh, with our lives and 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 in uh, in all dealing with the reality of death. I mean, think about that. I mean, we got people dying from this virus. Um, you know, they basically get on respirators and they're gone. And it's like, oh my gosh, they're it, 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 you're kind of checking in to you know, am I doing the right things in my life? And it's a self check, I think, too, for all of us and and learning to live with each other. Um, my wife and I just so. Uh, it's ironic, but we get along really well. We really do. We have some moments, but both both of us are on the same page most of the time. We encourage each other uh, with some challenges. She has a business that's been really shut down. I mean, it really has. Uh, mine, not so much. I'm Hopefully, the NFL will come back, and so I've got that going. As far as real estate, everything's really slowed down with that, with, with what we do. So there's financial challenges. There's uh, spiritual challenges, but I just think this um, is we're we're going to come out of this bigger, badder, and stronger as a country and more united. And I pray for our leadership. I really do. And uh, you know, I just uh, I, I'm just proud to be an American. And I know we're going to find a way out of this as a as a country and as a world. And uh, we're going to be better for it. You know, Barry, I I don't think it, it, it a lot could be said better than uh, what you said right there. I know. My wife and I have been married, you know, Carrie, we've been married over 40 years wow. and uh, rediscovering each other. You know, I mean, uh, when I go to work every day, uh, I'd spend, you know, a, a, a lot of time at work. And, uh, you know, she spends a lot of time being, it was an at-home mom and has her schedule that she goes through. Well, now that I'm working from home, we had to learn how to, to coexist again. So, you know. <laughs> And uh, who I, are you? Who are I, you? Yeah, yeah. Why are you home? Right. Yeah. Why are you constantly <laughs> in my way? That's what she's thinking about me. I'm sure. Yeah. But uh, you know, you learn how to coexist again, and and uh, really, it, it, you kind of fall in love all over again. I mean, it's yes, uh, it's it's that type of a feeling. And uh, you know, I I, I like you think uh, you know I'm 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 a glass half full guy. I think we're going to come through this. I think we're going to be better on the other side of it. And you know, it's, it's, it's a lesson learned, albeit very expensive lesson learned, uh, not only with the health and the, and, and the death that comes with this, but the financial ramifications on a lot of people in their businesses. And, uh, you know, people are, are, are going to have to bounce back. And uh, we're in the best country in the world to bounce back. So, you know, God willing, we will. And I totally agree with you. And, and one of the things that I do miss about the NFL is the relationships. It's our relationship, you and me, Zoop, over the years. We could still come together. And I think, like you said, you're redis rediscovering your relationship with Carrie after four years. And, and, and relationships are the most important thing, I believe, in life. I mean, it really is. And, uh, um, and we, we, you know, I cherish those relationships. I've only got a couple of friends, you know, at one time. I didn't know if I had any friends, but it was kind of you know, but a joke. But uh, but it's about those relationships. I, I have some good friends from college, only a couple that we stay in touch, and a couple from the NFL. I've got one, Zoop, you, you're you know from the NFL, Jimmy Ursay, you know, these relationships. And they're so valuable now. I think that's what maybe 
there's a heightened awareness on relationships. You, you know, dealing with each other and working with each other, relationship with your wife, with your kids, your community, neighbors, and everything else. So you're right. I think we're going to come out of this well. I, I hear you say that. And one thing that I was kind of thinking about when all this started was, you know, there's so many people I've talked to in the last month or two that I haven't talked to in maybe months or years. And I think it's only because someone told me I couldn't go see them anymore. And then all of a sudden there's like this revitalized spirit to be like, I must connect with people. Like I must find some normalcy. I must do this. And now it's, it has created this space to cultivate, um, or like revitalize old relationships. Um, you know, John and I, we've only been married for about a year and a half now, but it, it's, surprisingly been great so far in quarantine. Um, I do yoga with a friend of mine that I haven't talked to in like several months uh, every week and it brings me back to life. And so it's funny what you can do when someone tells you you can't do it anymore. Well, and I got to jump in here real quick, Barry. You'll appreciate this. She said, revitalize old relationships. I have socks older than her relationship. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> and trust me, he does. Yeah, you know, her old, old relationships, but the spirit is there. I understand where you're coming from, Alex. It's, uh, you know, if I were a young person plugged into social media and all those types of things, I mean, this is this is an opportunity now to, to you know, to to really see what those things are all about. And those things are keeping a lot of people sane right now. Shoot, you know, being able to communicate. So it's uh, that's uh, it's it's a sign of the times. Barry, you and I probably not on Facebook every day, yeah. but uh, you know this is this is Facebook for me right here. You know where we're Barry, talking. I tell you, I was sharing some stuff on social media, and I was like trying to find you on Instagram and like trying to find you on Twitter and like all this stuff to tag you in. And I was like, I think that's him. I don't know. He's only got like eleven people. He hasn't posted since two thousand sixteen. Like I don't know if this is him or not. <laughs> Well, my roommate at Alabama was Forrest Gump, and neither one of us was a very smart man. And <laughs> I'm not big into the whole Facebook thing, but I fake it. That's right, good. I got a couple questions real quick from the audience. Um, the first one being, when did you find out that the Colts were moving from Baltimore to Indy, and what was that transition, and how did it like? what did it look like from a player position? Wow, that was that's a great question. Um, it was it was kind of crazy. Uh, for about two or three years, the owner of the Colts, uh, Bob Ursay, had been threatening to uh, to move the team. And uh, at that time, uh, what I knew is that you know he had to show losses uh, that he was losing money to the rest of the other owners before he could even you know move a franchise. And and he was trying to negotiate a deal uh, on our stadium. It was called Memorial Stadium in Baltimore, and it was really dilapidated. It was just a, you know, toilets didn't work, you know, ceiling uh, panels were falling off. It was just a, just a rough place to play, and, and it was the same place as uh, where the Orioles played. So we would play on grass and part of that uh, clay way back then. So, you know, you'd make a tackle, and you'd get up, and it'd be clay in your face and everything else. But what happened was – uh, they, uh, it was Edward Bennett Williams owned the Orioles and Bob Ursay for the Colts. And both of them went to the city and wanted the city to pay for a new stadium. And, and the city said no. So he just said, you know what, I'm going to move the team. And he threatened to do it. And uh, so we're watching all this going on. And uh, it was uh, the fans of Baltimore didn't like it a bit. You know, they just didn't like the way he was going about it. 
And uh, when I found out there was a, there's like four or five different places. Jacksonville, Florida was a potential for the Colts. Uh, Shea Stadium in New York, where we used to play the New York Jets soup. And I don't know if you ever played there, yeah. we ever played there, but it was a baseball field. Uh, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona was another one. And a place called Indianapolis. So we had heard about these teams. And uh, I just remember the night that it went down, um, I was in an apartment uh, with a guy, Pat Beach. And he was a tight end for the Colts. And Pat calls me up. He goes, Barry, man, it's going down. It's going down. I'm like, what? He goes, the Colts are leaving. And I lived in Owings Mills, uh, Maryland. And that's exactly where our facility was. And we saw the trucks go in. They really, the semis went in, the Mayflowers went in. And, um, you know, hours later, all of a sudden they came out and you saw that famous picture. And it was almost like surreal. Man, we are leaving, we're going, you know. And so that night, everybody took off and I, you know, read some story. I actually talked to one of the Mayflower drivers that basically said that they had split up all the semis. So, uh, that they wouldn't get stopped. And at that time, there was a law that needed to be passed in Maryland that was not passed because they didn't believe the Colts were going to do it, but it's called eminent domain. And so the reason why they did it in the middle of the night, because the legislature couldn't meet until eight o'clock the next morning. By the time the legislator, they, they met with an emergency session, they passed the law, the semis were already out of the state. So physically it was gone. And it was really weird because I went over to the complex afterwards and I I was like, wow. And it looked like a tornado. I mean, these guys came in and ripped all the, everything out of there, anything with the cold stuff, there was junk on the floor. And what was the sad part was that there were a couple of me. So what's going on? What, 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 what can we do? And he goes, well, Barry, if you want to play for the Colts, you got to come to Indianapolis. I went, all right, I'm there. So Chris Hinton, yeah, I came over on the Mayflower to Indianapolis. And then I think it was the next day we had a pep rally in the RCA Dome. That was, no, not the RCA Dome, the Hoosier Dome. Hoosier Dome. I think it was Hoosier Dome. There were like 30,000 people there. Yeah. And Baltimore got tired of us. So we were like, you play for the Colts. We don't want to talk to you. You know, I think this come to Indianapolis. These fans just went like, we love you, man. All right. The Colts. I was like, wow, maybe I just made the NFL, man. This is fun. People actually like us and want us. And so the transition. So I remember Bob Ursay getting up and talking with Bill Hudnut and then uh, the, the, uh, the lawyer, which I'm fan base. Um, I would come out after a game, after about an hour of icing down, and the the the, the uh, parking lot was empty. I mean, really, except for a van over by where now there's a baseball stadium, and it was called the Green Van Fan Club, and they'd wait for me, and I'd have a beer. I, I didn't eat game day, so I would eat, and they'd feed me, and it was wonderful. But it's great to see the transition of the team, how, you know, it came from Indianapolis, didn't have a fan base, and it built it. And we did not win. I mean, it was one of the tough things, you know. I had six different head coaches in the first seven years with the Colts. Think yeah. about that. I mean, I had quarterbacks, Burt Jones, Mike Pagel, Arch Sleister, Mark Herbin, uh, 
you know, had a lot of different uh, uh, Jack Trudeau, a lot of different quarterbacks. Gary Hogaboom. Yeah. yeah, Gary Hogaboom. And we really never had, and nothing against those guys, but you know, a franchise quarterback or a franchise running back until 1987 when um, Ron Meyer went out and got, uh, you know, Eric Dickerson. And within that first year that Eric was there, guess what? We, we win the AFC, which was cool, the AFC East or whatever, and winning that game, winning that game, winning the AFC East. And uh, all of a sudden it was like, cool. We finally had Monday Night Football in 1987. I had never had that. So I'm proud of being a part of that, that, that base or the foundation of the Colts and where they are and where they've been able to go with, you know, uh, you know, with Peyton Manning is phenomenal winning the Super Bowl. I'm so proud of them. Uh, and, you know, people say, oh, Barry, yeah, I remember those old days. They weren't very good days or – uh, I remember those rough years, and I'm like, yeah, I was in the rough years. Mm-hmm. We're trying to find our way through this thing, but I'm so proud to still be part of this organization and to see it prospering. And Jimmy Ursay has been the the gift. I, I just wish I could have played for him as a an owner, but he's just a phenomenal guy, and he's just so generous, and he's been able to help this team go from uh, mediocre to – you know, really being on the map and being a, a contender and a expecting champion. greatness every year. Yes, you know? expecting greatness. So that's great. That, yeah. yeah, there's no question. I got another uh, audience question for you. Okay. Is Shula and Bryant were legendary coaches. Obviously, were there any similarities in their coaching styles? Oh, a lot of similarities. Um, um, again, you know, Don Shula, Coach Shula, would talk about winning a Super Bowl. What are we going to do to win a Super Bowl? You know, he'd always talk about that in practice. We're not playing well. We're not champions. We're not walking right. We're not doing the right things. We got to be examples. We got to get out there. And um, they both were great leaders and great motivators. And what they, when you say a motivator, you got to understand, and I see this in the Nick Saban as well, they have a unique way of relating to the players. And what happens is, the players, like I playing for Coach Brian or Don Shula, I did not. The worst thing I could ever do was disappoint him. Oh, my gosh. You know, I would never want to, you know, disappoint Coach Brian. I mean, he gave me the opportunity to have a scholarship and to play for Alabama. That was the worst thing that would it hurt me because there were times when I hurt Coach Brian because I didn't try hard enough sometimes. I got discouraged. I had to fight through some tough times in the first couple of years at Alabama. And then thanks thing with John Shula, I was like, oh, my God, you're my idol. I don't want to disappoint you. And those great leaders do that. And they, they were able to, to get a group of people together and help them share a common goal and come together, black, white, whatever, you know, fast, small, big, whatever, and be able to accomplish this goal. And, it was, and it's to be part of something greater than yourself. And that's what those great coaches did for us, Coach Brian and, and, and Coach Shula, uh, they, they allowed us to be a part of something. So it was very special. It meant more than just going out and putting a, day's, a day of work in. You're going, okay, I'm just going through the motions. I really don't care. No, I, I want to be a part of something special. So, you know, when I came into the NFL, the NFL players didn't help me. They, they just them. So I'm going to help them become the best that they can be. I can help them mentally. Hey, 
Remember, you got to drop back here. You got to do like this. So I helped doing that, helped do that. So that's what I saw and that's what I learned from Coach Bryant and Don Shula was the fact that they were winners, they were champions, and I wanted to be a part of that. And it was a great experience to have known both of them. And, uh, you know, it's phenomenal. People come up to me kind of like almost like Elvis Presley when I go to Alabama games. They swarm around me and they go, what was Coach Bryant like? What was he like? And I tell him, I said, my gosh, Coach Bryant had a presence that you wouldn't believe. Joe Namath tells this story. Kenny Stabler told it before, rest in peace, Kenny Stabler. But we all have common relationship because we all played for Coach Bryant. And we all says, say the same thing. Coach Bryant had an incredible presence. He would walk into a room, uh, a banquet room with like 500 people in it, and it would go dead quiet. When he walked into the room, everybody would go, there's Coach Bryant. There's Coach Bryant. And Coach Bryant would just walk in and everything would settle down. I remember playing Ohio State in the Sugar Bowl in 1977. And we had a Friday night big – it turned out to be a big pep rally because Ohio State had great following. So did Alabama, but it just seemed to have a lot of Ohio State fans. So they were chanting Ohio State, and they introduced, you know, the football team. And they are like, yeah, 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 they're chanting. And they introduced Woody Hayes, the head coach, and they cheer him and stuff. Then they go, okay, let's introduce the Alabama Crimson Tide. And you hear booze and all this. And they said, now here's the head coach of the University of Alabama, Coach Paul Bear Bryant. Place went quiet. There was no disrespect. There was this incredible respect that Coach Bryant commanded, and so did Don Shula. It was just an awesome experience. It was like, you know, uh, that I can take away that only the players felt that I played with. We had that experience together that yeah I remember being with coach Bryant it scared the death out of you Ray Perkins talked about it he became the head coach of the New York Giants and in Alabama he says the biggest thing I feared was disappointing coach Bryant um, I asked him I said you were the head coach of, of the New York Giants and coach Bryant called you up and asked you in 1983 uh, coach Bryant basically it was 82 I think 82 83 it was the end of 83. Coach Bryant had determined that he didn't want to coach anymore. He couldn't recruit. So he said, I'm not a good coach anymore. He asked, he calls Ray, Ray Perkins in. Ray Perkins quits the New York Giants, quits, and becomes the head coach at Alabama. And I remember rocking into Ray, and I said, Ray, I got to ask you. I said, you were the head coach. You quit. Are just phenomenal and play for, you know, Coach Shula. He won the Super. I mean, he was, went 17 and 0. And yeah, old Coach Shula. Uh, I had my father-in-law in North Carolina. Funny story, and it's really cool. This really warms my heart. I'm going to share it with you. Is that um, I just wanted Coach Shula to know who I was, and you know, just yeah, little old Barry Krause from Pompano Beach, Florida, bean picker, you know. And so my father-in-law was. Uh, it was about a year or so ago, and. He was in North Carolina. He was in a restaurant, a club, actually, and Coach Shula was there. And Coach Shula physically can't walk anymore. He's in a wheelchair. And so he um, decided to walk over and introduce himself to Coach Shula. And he said, hi, my name's George Petway, and you don't know who I am, but my, my son-in-law, Barry Krause, played for you. And he, he, he said, he leaned back. He goes, 
Barry Krause, number 55. He goes, my best linebacker ever. And I was, I was like, he said that? And he said, yes, he did. He knew who you were. And I was like, I got it. I'm done. <laughs> I can end the life now, man. He knew who I was, and I got to play for him. That's great. That's yeah. a fantastic story. So, Barry, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to see you. I, I, I didn't realize how much I missed you until uh, we did this tonight. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's going to be a shame if I'm not talking to you at least every other month from now on. I'd like and to. When, when the season hits here, we'll go out and get some dinner when you come into town and stay for a few days. So make sure you uh, make sure you. Chattanooga, too. What's that? And I bet we could get you down to Chattanooga, too. Yeah, I got to go to Chattanooga to visit, uh, visit it as well. The Chattanooga uh, choo-choo. That's right. Yeah. Pardon me, Roy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you, too, Zoop. First off, Alex, thank you for putting this on. John, thank you very much. Zoop, it's great seeing you, and it is about reconnecting with relationships, and I would love to be able to touch base with you a little bit more often, but um, you mean a lot to me, brother. You, you mean a lot to me, and more than you would ever even think about, but it's great to see you, and a great, great that, uh, that you're doing well, and please give my love to Carrie. I will do that. All right. And you give, a wonderful uh, woman. give your best to my friend. She's going to not when she dies, she's going straight to heaven. No, yeah, man. no, no funeral, no nothing. Just like that for putting up with me. Yeah. So, Alex, John, thanks for getting everything together. Barry, love you. And we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Zoom. Take care. Good night. Good night. So make sure to follow us on Instagram at yoga mutts. That's M U T T Z for all the behind the scenes content. And if you could think of anyone that'd be perfect to come on the show, send me a DM, let me know their info and I'll reach out to them. Uh, final thing, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcasting platform for our new episodes and leave us a review to let us know what you think.